Hello and welcome to the Ambassador Labs podcast, where we explore all things cloud-native platforms, developer control planes, and developer experience. I'm your host, Daniel Bryant, Director of DevRel here at Ambassador Labs, and today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Cheryl Hung, whom I'm sure many of you know from her great work at the CNCF and within the tech community at large. Join us for a fantastic discussion covering topics such as the Google development process and tooling, how the cloud-native developer experience and control planes are evolving, and why dealing with infrastructure is still very challenging. And remember, if you want to dive deeper into the motivation for and the benefits of a developer control plane or are new to Kubernetes and want to learn more in our free Summer of Kubernetes series of events, please visit getambassador.io to get started. So welcome, Cheryl. Many thanks for joining us today. Could you briefly introduce yourself and give a bit of your background, please? Hey, Daniel. Really great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So yeah, my name is Cheryl Hung. I'm the VP of Ecosystem at CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is the home of Kubernetes, Prometheus, Envoy, lots and lots of other open source projects. In fact, I think we've just about hit 100 open source projects, which is um, something to celebrate. But yeah, my background is as a software engineer. I was at Google for quite a few years building C++, Google Maps, backend features. Um, And then I moved into infrastructure, developer advocacy, and that's kind of how I found myself at CNCF. Awesome stuff, Cheryl. So you and I have known each other for a few years through the London tech scene and other things like the meetup Mm. scene and CNCF, of course. I remember chatting to you a few years ago now about your time at Google. And I was always super interested in the developer experience because what goes on at Google is not public to everyone, right? So I wonder, could you briefly explain the kind of dev tool, tool chain you had at the time when you were writing code and then obviously, you know, deploying it and releasing it. What was the experience like during your time at Google? Yeah, this is actually a really, really uh, interesting topic because I started at Google in 2010. So you could say that I've been sort of thinking in that like container cloud native mode for about 10 years at this point. Um, and I was there for five years. So obviously the experience also changed over the course of that five years. Um, And I actually remember uh, the next gig I went to after Google, they asked me a similar question. It was a storage company. They asked me like, oh, how does Google do storage? And I was a bit like, I don't know, because I never (laughs) had to worry about it because it was all a solved problem at Google. Um, So as as a developer inside Google, the experience is super, super nice, to be honest. For the most part, you could actually forget about the fact that you have to run infrastructure, that there is any kind of physical infrastructure underneath it. For instance, um, you don't know what machines you're running on. You you know roughly what data center and what region it's in, but you don't have any further control over over that. Um, And as a things like storage, things like security, things that are like quite big problems at the moment yeah. still I would say cloud native you know Google's team solved those 10 years ago um, so as a developer I was just like oh okay I never have to worry about you know data loss or uh, problems <laughs> like that or, or yeah because it was literally a solved problem <laughs> um, you know layers upon layers of libraries I could use and all of those solved issues with reliability and with consistency and all of these things However, there's a flip side to this, right? Because it's not all, not all roses. <laughs> the, the negative side of this is as a developer, you don't really spend a lot of time understanding. You don't need to spend a lot of time understanding ah, how this works. Um, and 
it's very, very easy to start kind of cargo culting bits mm. of, um, well, not YAML because it was not YAML <laughs> inside Google, but like equivalent, right? Yeah, bits yeah. of YAML around because you're like, oh, this looks like it does more or less the right thing. Interesting. I will just copy it from some other <laughs> um, <laughs> directory. And as long as it does more or less the right thing, then I'm happy. Like I never have to touch it again. So you did see a, th- a lot of things like people just massively over-provisioning because, <laughs> you know, it's it has no impact on the developer, right? Whether right. you want, you know, however many gigabytes of whatever you request, it's just a number. And you. you're, not, you're not paying for it, you know, right? <laughs> you're not paying for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you don't get any like... Exactly. You know, the infrastructure teams are not going to come back to you and say, you know, <laughs> cut back on what you're using. Um, and you don't have that pressure that uh, you do, that a developer today, if they're using a cloud provider, you would get a bill at the end of the day. Yeah, right? yeah. So you would have that exposed to you. Um, but inside Google, because it was all Google infrastructure, all managed by Google, it was just like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Resources are free and infinite. Right? Mm. And you treat them as free and infinite. So, so yeah, I would say the developer experience in in terms of infrastructure, that's how it played out. Like very, very convenient, very easy because there was not a lot that you had to think about. But on the flip side of it, <laughs> because you didn't have to think about it, it was easy to never really learn the details of how things work, never like not be careful about yeah. resources. I can imagine yeah. almost like almost like um, what they call it in finance, a moral hazard, right? In terms of like, if you're not responsible mm. for the consequences, you're like, whatever. And like, it's much safer to over-provision than under-provision and cause a problem. But yes. obviously there's a cost associated yeah. with that. So yeah, that's super yeah. interesting, Cheryl. That's, that, yeah. It definitely means you can focus more on the actual problem at hand, like your requirements, but it does create that kind of strange disconnection with the platform. Yes, exactly, exactly. And you know, it was, it's, I think, much like a, there was a saying inside Google that I think applies to Kubernetes today as well, <laughs> or cloud native, um, which is that, you know, it, it takes six months to run one of something and then like minutes, no time at all to run 10,000. <laughs> yeah, right? interesting. Um, because like the, the learning curve for Borg and for Kubernetes yep. is so steep. You know, oh, you do actually have to understand a lot of concepts before you can get to the point of deploying a single application. But then once you've got that single application up and running, scaling from there is like... Yeah, yeah. a simple like, line in a, in a like YAML config these days, right? Replica count. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Super. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. What was yeah. the actual developer experience like around, say, the coding, Cheryl? Like, I presume you pulled like the code from a Git like repo and then developing on local machine and then like ci and cd is that quite like you know quite standard or yeah it wasn't it wasn't using git um we were using perforce well we used perforce for a while and then um google rebuilt everything internally uh so be perforce compatible (laughs) as google does for sure you know rebuild everything um but for better scalability basically um the biggest thing that i remember changing about the coding experience over the five years is that um, at the beginning of my my time there, when I first joined, it was as you've described, you know, you would pull down some code locally, you would build it, you would run it, you would make your changes, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. By the end of uh, my time there, so 2015, 
I was coding exclusively in the browser. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard there that, was a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was this project called Sitsi, which is like coding in the cloud. Um, mm. And it was all custom built for Google's infrastructure, you know, all the testing, all the CICD, everything was built into this mm. one application. And of course, being um, a cloud service, it was nice because you could go anywhere and you could move from computer to computer and you didn't have oh, to worry awesome. about taking your yeah. uh, local state with you. Uh, that's something that I haven't actually seen very much of. And I don't know if you've seen... I've seen like, now you mentioned this, this was like five or so years ago, right? I've, I've chatted to Kelsey Hightower mm. on the podcast last year and he mentioned the same experience. And I was blown away by hearing about this, mm. right? Because the, there is... AWS acquired, I think, Cloud9 or something like that. It was, AWS have got an offering mm. in this space. And there's, well, there's an Eclipse project. It's, the name is escaping at the moment. But um, Eclipse have an uh, Eclipse Chi uh, have like an online browser thing. But it's pretty niche from what I understand. But when I hear the likes of like yourself and Kelsey and like Google in general using this, and you all like pretty much enjoyed using it, why is it not so popular in the, in the quote, quote, real mm. world? Mm. Do you know what I mean? I think part of the problem is that, you know, with inside Google, you still have a kind of a very similar understanding of the infrastructure. Like, yes, there's a lot of teams, but you're still using more or less the same infrastructure and the same tools at the end of the day. Whereas ah. externally, like every company is going to have a different way of doing things. So maybe it's harder to build one browser experience that makes sense for everyone. Um, and even though but you structure your code, Cheryl, yeah. like, so I've heard like the Google, um, sort of the mono repo, what kind of stuff, like the famous mono repo in Google, like that, even that makes a bunch of decisions sort of for you compared to like, I've worked at companies that had lots of mm -hmm. repos or different structures, these kind of things, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was so used to working in a single gigantic repo and um, yeah, it means that you can make certain assumptions about mm -hmm. how things are structured in a browser. Uh, so yeah, like by the end, I was a hundred percent working browser-based. And like all the CI and CD was kicked off from that. Like you'd commit in the browser, so to speak, and then behind the scenes, it would do its thing. Exactly. <laughs> Pretty nice. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and could yeah, you easily check is, up on yeah. that, or like, could you? Like, was there like a UI where you said, like, oh, this is my job. It's building. These tests have failed. That kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. some of that was built into the browser, into that particular Sitsi uh, project. Some of it was. A separate place that you would go if you wanted more information um but that is something that yeah i don't feel like i've seen it very much i've not seen it widely adopted outside yeah. of google um but as an experience from a developer's point of view it was brilliant you know it's amazing yeah <laughs> that's amazing yeah, it was just like yeah but this is what i mean again by the that kind of trade-off between like it's so convenient but then you never actually have to learn anything in detail because to you it's just a button on a on a web page. So yeah, pros and cons. That is interesting. And what's your personal thoughts around those levels of trade-offs? Because I definitely chat to engineers who just want to code business functionality. Like, and I respect that, right? They're like, I know Node, I know Go, I know Java. I just want to code stuff, and I kind of want a Heroku-like experience, Cloud Foundry-like experience. I want to just hand off my code to someone, something, and and it runs. Do you know what I mean? But then mm -hmm. like, I, I keep hearing you talk about like there's a danger in that. You'd lose touch with how things are going to run. So what's your personal thoughts of how, uh, when you, like, as an engineer, how do you balance that personally? Um, I, I mean, even though I've been working in infrastructure for a few years now, um, I think I still 
I'm definitely biased towards the the application developer perspective. You know, I've got things that I need to build. Um, as long as they work, I don't. And as long as they keep running, you know, I kind of don't really care that much about mm-hmm. things. Um, actually, I remember on a on a podcast that I did a few months ago. They asked me like, "Oh, what's your like controversial take on infrastructure?" And I and <laughs> my answer was like, "I kind of hate infrastructure. <laughs> um, I don't literally hate it, but you know, infrastructure is hard. Yeah, it's yeah, unreliable. It, it fails. It's unpredictable. You know, compared to software that you just write in you know Go or whatever your language of choice, and it always runs, you know, pretty much the same way every time." Um, infrastructure is really, really hard. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the reason that I like containers and I like, and everybody likes these, um, the paradigm of cloud native is it makes it easier. It, it allows you to pretend that you've got a cluster that is, that can scale infinitely, that has no problems, that never goes down, you know. And I actually think these are really, really great benefits. So my own personal take on it is that, yeah, I, I'm like, let the application developer focus on what they're good at, what they can do, and let the infrastructure teams focus on what they can do. And, you know, that's that's enough. <laughs> I like it, Joe. I like it. And I definitely think, like, for my time with various roles I've done, that separation of concerns is really useful at times, right? Knowing kind of, like, these are the boundaries of my role. Because if, like, there's a notion of full stack engineer even encompasses sometimes ops these days, right? You're writing Terraform code or whatever. And I imagine that's like, that can be super stressful. Do you know what I mean? Suddenly like, you know, one minute you're writing Terraform, the next minute you're writing like some Go code. And as an engineer, like learning all that stuff and to your point, all the things a little bit below it, it can, is a recipe for burnout almost there, right? Mm, yeah, I'm always a little bit suspicious of the full stack designation because of that reason. It's like, Okay, in a startup where you have two developers that yeah. you know they have to do everything, fine, you're gonna to have to learn it. But there is so much to learn in infrastructure. The you know, you could spend you can spend your entire career <laughs> you yeah, uh trying to yeah, trying to figure out the best way to do monitoring or the best way to do storage or any of these topics. So I don't think it's ever realistic to say like, okay, just you know, developers and DevOps are now the same thing and you know, I hear now you. it's just up to developers to learn everything. Yeah, totally. Have you got any thoughts around like the interface or the control plane or the APIs that would sit between DevOps? Because like, we mentioned Heroku and Cloud Foundry. Like mm. I grew up, I did a bunch of Ruby and Rails and we used Heroku and it was magical, right? Like Git push, Heroku, job done, was deployed. I was kind of curious, like with your experience at Google and your experience up until now as well, have you got any preferences for but yeah, I guess the APIs and the UX of the thing that you'd use as a developer. Um, yeah, so one of the things that I do at CNCF is I lead the end user community. This is a group of 150 plus companies who are end users of cloud native. So, um, you know, retail companies, banks, you know, technology companies like Reddit that are going to be using uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. cloud native, but they're not selling cloud native services. Um, so I've kind of seen a few, a lot of different approaches to this question of like, what is the right level of abstraction that you want That's to hand it. over yeah. Yeah, yeah. between uh, developers and, and DevOps or the platform. Yep. Um, and there's kind of, uh, 
there's two extremes to this, right? One is um, give everyone kubectl and like <laughs> yeah. give everyone all access to everything and just yeah. let them do whatever they want. Um, the other extreme is hide all levels of abstraction, hide everything away and like fully abstract, like build a custom abstraction within your own organization and never let the developers access anything <laughs> yeah, yeah. outside of that. And I think the latter is problematic, to be honest. Interesting, um, interesting. I've seen a couple of companies go down this route and then a year or 18 months later go, uh, it's way too much work for us to keep up with the external mm. pace of Kubernetes oh, and the change. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and, you know, people can't use documentation. They can't use external forums we can't like we have to rebuild all the training materials because they can't use any of this external work uh so you know it's just too much to try and maintain your own complete abstractions mm. um but then the the other side of this the kind of hand raw cube ctl over is you know like uh, <laughs> <Danger>. uncomfortable <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly exactly um not uh, yeah exactly yeah i've been there right? I've, I've literally right? like i've sshed into prod boxes and blown stuff up i'm sure you've done something similar right back before oh, kubectl sure. was a thing and i i, I often yeah. think now kubectl is analogous to ssh in some cases like you can just jump in you can exec into pods whatever you can do a lot of good and you can do a lot of damage right even with good right. intentions you can do a lot of damage <laughs> exactly exactly and it's it's not easy to figure out like to put the proper guardrails on things so one, one thing that I have seen, um, which I think is pretty exciting, is uh, Backstage, which yep. is this developer portal from yeah, Spotify. Yeah, loving it, loving it, yep. And the nice thing, well, a couple of nice things. Like obviously, it's a, well, it's a UI, right? It's a dashboard, set of dashboards. So from a developer's point of view, they don't need to go and read the manual on how kubectl commands work, you know, probably 95% of the things that they ever need to do, they can do it from within a dashboard. Mm. So lessen to the learning curve and, you know, makes it a much nicer experience for the developers. Yeah, yeah. But then if they really need access to anything beyond that, then, you know, it's up to them to learn the, the platform tools and, you know, do the correct thing using command line. So they that kind of is pop nice the hood, so to speak. They can like, or was the um, break glass, right. isn't it? Like some folks say they said break glass, as in like, if you're doing stuff that is the norm, it should be all via the UI. But if you really need to break the glass, you can escape and get down to the lower level. Exactly. That's a really good metaphor for it. I've stolen, um, I've stolen it from someone. I'm, yeah, I've not made that up, but I've definitely heard the break glass <laughs> metaphor before. I was like, I like that. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's exactly the point. Like, most of the time you don't need to be learning the in the depths of everything to do the basic stuff yes um for that you know give someone a ui let them click around you know you give them graphs and nice things to look at yeah. um, but if they really need it then yeah give them the actual raw tools so that they can do whatever they need to I like that. I like that. And that, you're not the first person to mention Backstage. I think Casper um, at Luna, they are using Backstage. Mm. And he said it's fantastic for onboarding. All your points you made there, Cheryl, in terms of like single pane of glass, place to go to when you need to like look at documentation. So I, I definitely think the future is is being 
probably driven by Backstage at the moment in that space, but I think it's a lot of other interesting tools and we're definitely at Bastard Labs, we're looking in that space too. And I mm. wonder, how do you think that will alter the relationship between developers and platform? Something you hinted at earlier on, right? Is it going to be that the platform team create all the components of this Backstage-like thing and then developers just consume that? Or maybe make you know requirement requests to the platform team saying, hey, I really need this dashboard. I really need this way of interacting with Kubernetes or something like that. Um, yeah, I think that is a reasonable way to, to go about it. Um, I will say at Google, it was extremely, extremely rare to ever have to interface with a platform team. You know, the platform really? team provided a lot of these tools. Um, Backstage is a, it's got a plugin architecture as well. So I could imagine um, platform teams building in the correct plugins that they need to use and then saying, you know, 99% of the time, just use this. You know, yeah, yeah. You don't need to be talking to us as individuals to request stuff. Um, I mean, the only time, about the only time that at Google I would talk to the, uh, okay, so so there were kind of two times when I really interacted most with the, the platform. Um, one was when you were launching a new product. Ah, uh, makes sense. And then you have to set up SRE rotations and, you know, it's a bit more, uh, there's more people involved. Yeah. And then the second time, there was some feature that I really, really wanted in uh, the depths of some... Um, I can't even remember which <laughs> it was now. Uh, but the way that I, I interacted with that was, uh, I was a C++ developer. This was written in Go. So oh, I sent them you. a very bad patch with basically Go written in a C++ <laughs> idiomatic style and said, like, this is what I want. Please, like, take this and rewrite it in a proper Go-like format. Um, <laughs> because I had actually, like, properly studied up on Go at that point. So I was like, yeah, yeah. oh. This looks more or less about right. <laughs> um, and then I just handed it over to them and said, like, you know, I've expressed what I want. I've given you the tests. Like, oh, nice, nice. Please go and implement this. Yeah. Implement this in a proper, like, idiomatic proper kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, idiomatic and one that makes sense with the rest of the product and everything else. Um, but yeah, every other time, like, I I never had to interface. I never had to talk to a person. Interesting. To, um, to get what I wanted from the Borg infrastructure. That's super interesting, Lecho. And do you think that was a sort of like a sign of the evolution of the platform? Do you reckon like getting to that stage, some folks may have been doing that or was that always Google's intention, I guess, with the platform to get that abstraction level so good that you don't need to be chatting to each other? Mm, yeah. I think there's actually a lot of... Um, I don't know if it was the intention from the beginning, but certainly over time, like the more self-service things you can provide yeah. from a platform to the application developers, the better. I mean, it saves you time on both sides. You can be more constrained about, yeah. uh, about requests and what you need. So, and Google, of course, had a, an army, a veritable army <laughs> of developers. So we would run into like, every single uh oh, that's a good point obscure you, you, yeah that's a good point you very quickly learn whereas like an average organization might take years to bump into all these things right yeah exactly yeah, exactly point. like if you are a platform person and you're getting the same kind of requests once a week it's worth it to you yeah to build point. out build that out 
that kind of comes back, I think. That's, that's super interesting observation because that kind of comes back to your early comment around the infrastructure being somewhat homogenized at Google. Whereas if we look at the CNCF world, the world, just the cloud native world, let's say, it, there is some homogenization, Kubernetes, maybe Istio or something, but there's a whole bunch of infrastructure, Amazon versus Azure versus GCP, that I wonder we could never get to that level of homogenization, most of us, that Google have. Is that going to be a limiting factor? Um, hmm, limiting in what sense? In the all the good stuff I'm hearing you talk about in the Google world is somewhat predicated on, on it being homogenized at the sort of infrastructure level. And I'm wondering, mm. like, and you've almost, I'm, I'm definitely paraphrasing, I think, your, your earlier take on this, in that because most organizations are not going to have that level of homogeneity because, like, they've got different, uh, infrastructure from different eras. They've done some, maybe some mergers or some acquisitions and they brought in a new cloud or something. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not such a, like a, a, a controlled environment as Google? Um, kind of. So yes, I agree that Google was more homogenous than, you know, most companies can be. But underneath the hood, there was actually a lot of... Uh, Google's infrastructure was also built out over tens of years as well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, people were using different versions of things. So there was a little bit more different than it seemed. But on the whole, uh, I, I think if we had been having this conversation 10 years ago, yep. we would have said um, there's no way that something, the one kind of universal layer for infrastructure will emerge because Good point. people are using Terraform, people are using... Mm-hmm. Bash scripts, people using whatever mm. duct tape and glue <laughs> and you know, cross fingers. Um, so the emergence of Kubernetes it's as a really a, good point. Like, mm. sort of standard-ish layer is already quite a big leap forward. Yeah, would you agree with that? I would that's a really good observation, Cheryl. I, I 100% agree with that. In that, yeah, and to that point. Is there a future layer that's waiting to be discovered? I've had a few folks talk about this, right? Like, you know, I thought Knative for a while was super interesting. Um, there's a bunch of other spaces. Like Kubernetes is still quite, quite raw, isn't it? In terms of like, like to your point, you have to learn a lot of things, pod services, deployments, these kind of things. Um, you make a really good point. So like we could be having this conversation right in five years time and there'd be a completely different fabric, right? Mm. <laughs> that has become like, you know, even like serverless and stuff like Knative and other offerings, they are providing a different abstraction on top of Kubernetes and other things, right? Yeah, 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 that's that's true. I think the developer experience is always going to be different from company to company. Like that's where you want a startup and a, you know, 200-year-old bank. Yeah. They're not going to have the same <laughs> that's a good experience, point. right? Yeah. Um, but the infrastructure below that, like, I feel like there is something that is a little bit more opinionated, maybe, than mm. Kubernetes that could get wider adoption. Um, at one point, I also thought serverless might be that because it seems like a nice paradigm, but uh, I would yeah. say serverless has not really um, taken over. It's funny, you know, I, I think many folks have chatted to, like I said, Sam Newman a while back, he said exactly the same as you. Like it shows promise, but it's not quite there yet in terms of developer experience. You still, I think I chatted to Gareth Rushgrove and he was like, you, you go from serverless and writing lots of application programming code to writing lots of config code. 
right? Your app application is pretty basic, right? Like a few lines of Node. Then you're writing all this Terraform code or all this CloudFormation code or whatever, right? <laughs> so he was like, you're swapping mm. complexities around, mm. which I thought was super interesting and challenging. That is interesting. That is something that um, I wonder if that is one of the reasons that serverless hasn't taken off to a greater extent. Because as we were talking about early, earlier, developers often want to be like, let me just focus on the code. I don't actually want to learn all of the, the glue code that holds it together. Whereas, yeah, if serverless requires you, in fact, puts more emphasis on the glue code, then it's not going to be as attractive platform. I, I wonder that. Charles, and like, because you often the way service runs, you're forced. Like, we maybe become full circle, aren't we? But you're you're forced to write to a certain API. Like, you're dealing with events arriving. Do you know what I mean? I remember like back even back in my early Java days, I would do things like EJBs, Enterprise Java Beans, and we had to code to very specific interfaces. And I was like, this is so restrictive. And now mm -hmm. we've come full circle. When I fired up Lambda, like obviously a year or two ago, when it was sort of newish, uh, I was like, hang on, this interface is really restrictive. But like that, mm. you have to code to that because that's the way. And then I had to write all this plugin glue code to your point. I was like, glue config. I was like, hang on, we've like back, back to the EJB days in like 2002. <laughs> True, yeah. Yeah, no, that is an interesting thought. I think serverless is like, I think it's a really nice paradigm, but I think, yeah, it's going to stay niche. Interesting thoughts. That's possible. These great thoughts on, on developer experience. Before we um, wrap up, I'd love to get your thoughts on, we talked about sort of infrastructure a, a fair bit there. The, the, the tech radars are super interesting. I'm kind of curious what you've learned from the CNCF tech radars from chatting to the end users. Is there, um, you know, clear takeaways because what you've done like multi-cluster you've done cd i think i, I forget all the different um they're fascinating I, i'll yeah. put them in the show notes so folks can find them but they're fascinating insights sometimes the tools that get recommended in the tech radar i'm like really but clearly that's what you found when chatting to all these end users so is there anything that jumps out to you it's like super interesting trends across the tech radars i guess hmm yeah so the the tech radar is an initiative that started in the middle of 2020, 2020. yeah, middle of pandemic time. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and uh, kind of the goal, the goal behind the tech radars was never to be, and I'm not sure you ever can be completely objective about agreed, saying, agreed. you know, this is how you do infrastructure, you know, that's it. Um, which is what actually I hear some people uh, ask me all the time, like, can CNCF tell us if we're doing our infrastructure right? I'm like, no, because nobody, <laughs> nobody can tell you that. Yeah, good um, point. So like the, the idea behind the tech radars was to give a snapshot of what is currently actually happening. What is the ground truth from the end users? Um, what do they recommend? What do they really think about different aspects of infrastructure? So we've done, as you said, we've done quite a few editions now. It comes out once a quarter. So we've looked at, yeah. Multi-cluster management, database storage, Same. secrets management, um, observability, I think was one. Mm -hmm. And I guess I guess the there's been some surprises in each individual one. I can't really think of any like trends that happen across them so much. Uh, the topics, by the way, are also chosen by uh, team of volunteers oh interesting radar team so 
we, we select like five of the end users at random and ask them to pick a topic and ask them to kind of compile the final results together so that it's properly representative of oh, cool. yeah, the community. Yeah. Um, and then we, you know, support facilitate. publishing it and facilitate it. And it's very specifically set up in that way. So it's not, you know, CNCF's opinion. It is the real community. Oh, I didn't know about opinion. the topics being picked. That's kind of cool. It makes, it makes a lot of sense as well, right? Because it's the voice of the community. Yes, yes, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Um, so yeah, I think the, I think the things that I think the topics are actually quite interesting mm. because the there are some topics like observability that pretty much everybody will run into. Yep. Or they will need you know yeah. pretty quickly. Um, it's pretty standard part of uh, setting up cloud native infrastructure. Things like secrets management, you will need, but you can kind of get away with mm, jerry-rigging yep. stuff for quite a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then something like multi-cluster management is much harder because yeah, interesting. you probably have so many different approaches to it. Um, and multi-cluster management, like once you've got your tools set up, it's a lot of risk, it's a lot of risk to move yeah. away from what you've currently got. Yeah, that so, totally makes it. You're very yeah. coupled into the solutions, right? Exactly, exactly. And there's no massive, there's not usually a big reason why you'd want to change mm. how you're, you're managing your clusters once you've done it for a year or two and you've solved basic problems. So, yeah, I think that's the thing that I find interesting about the topics. Some of those, it's worth thinking about, like, is this something that everybody's going to need to do? Is this something yeah. that people are going to be doing People can ignore for a while or then they run into it later, run into it later. Yeah, super interesting because it almost goes back to our platform argument because like you say, observability, you need feedback on an infrastructure level as much as you do on an app level right as you know kpis my hit my kpis at a, as the application mm. but then yeah like when i saw multi-cluster management i've been working with the linkedin folks buoyant folks for a while on this kind of stuff so i'm loving the link you know linkedin experience i've bumped into katie Kamanji talking about cluster api and all these kind of things right so i'm sort of like mm. i've bumped into it but i haven't seen that many people actually implement it yet customers i'm chatting to community members i'm chatting to everyone's got observability to your point multi-cluster Maybe in the future, folks are looking at it. So even the ch- now, mm. I know what you said. Even the choice of topics that the community is interested in on the tech radars is somewhat telling itself, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like the idea behind getting the community to pick the topics is like, who knows what what things are currently of interest? There could be thousands of things that are of interest out there. So what do the community think? What is currently a problem mm. with the with the community, like the, the community itself? Yeah, is struggling yeah. with. Um, so yeah, as people read the tech radar, which actually you can look at, uh, you can find on radar.cncf.io. Nice. You can find all our past editions. Um, that's something that I would think about as you are reading and looking at those reports. Awesome. So that's, I think that's a perfect segue now. I'd like to, to wrap up. Is there anything we haven't talked about today that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I've kind of learned from my last couple of years working with the open source community, working with CNCF. Fundamentally, open source is not hard in the sense that a lot of people who want to go into doing open source work tend to think like, oh, I have to be a genius. I have to like, you know, be able to solve everything in the world. And (laughs) yeah. And and I kind of try and tell people open source work is um, 
it's kind of grueling. Like you have to constantly be there. You have to constantly show up to things. Oh, yes. um, and you have to do this over an extended period of time so that people get to know you. But fundamentally, like what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Nice. The more time you put into it, like the more enjoyment and satisfaction that you'll get back from what you're doing. So yeah, I guess just a little encouragement, just a little shout out to people. If you're thinking like, oh, open source is this really big, overwhelming thing and I don't know where to begin, I'm like, start showing up, do that consistently over a long period of time and yeah, you'll be great. That is awesome advice, Cheryl. That's something like my mentors have said to me in the past and I started with open source Java and things like that. And when I started doing that, that was a definite inflection point in my career. I met some amazing people, mm. opportunities opened up and it wasn't easy to your point. There was a lot of like, you know, running meetups and all these kind of things. But that I, I definitely echo that advice to all the folks I, I work with now, you know, get involved. The communities where it's at, I think they know CNCF, the general cloud community does such a really good job of being welcoming. To folks bringing more folks into the community right learning and these yes. kind of things so yeah exactly and pay it forward i love the fact that you're telling other people and bringing other people to do this as well because that's how we all get better 100 pay it forward. i love that pay it forward but my mentors always said that's me don't pay it back pay it forward that is great advice mm-hmm. great advice awesome well thank you for actually your time today show great chatting to you yeah lovely chatting to you too thank you so much 